Welcome back, everyone. I'm here again with Roman Skaskiu, uh, who is just recently left Ukraine and is is in Poland right now. We're going to talk about the Russian military and assess how they've been doing thus far in the conflict. And for the record, it is Sunday, March 20th, Pacific time. Um, I imagine it's probably late at night where, where you are right now, Roman, same day. 5.30 p.m. Okay. All right. So it's not that not that late, not that terrible. All right. So the stuff that we're seeing in the, in the Western media, it's almost the Russian performance appears to have been like so bad that I'm not even convinced they could defend their own borders. Uh, is that, is that kind of the case of what Ukrainians are seeing on the ground right now? Is that accurate? Yes, there was a poll today. Uh, almost 90% of Ukrainians expect victory. That is a staggeringly high number. And 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 what and that's even in the face of because what what I've seen thus far is at the beginning of the war it was very clear that Putin wanted to have a, a quick decapitation strike of Kiev or yep. Kiev, and as well as to connect that land bridge that we talked about um, in the last in the last segment or last episode. And everybody thought it would happen. Western intelligence thought it would happen. Yeah, they, they, my understanding is they thought it was going to be about 48 hours. Um, I've always said, I thought the whole campaign would take three to six weeks. Um, And I think even that assessment is, is probably wrong. But what, what I think you're seeing is, you know, my interpretation of the whole conflict is, oh, look, I think Putin's a, 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 a bad evil man but i think he's more talented than any uh, as a strategist than any politician we have in the united states um and i think what happened with him is in in autocratic regimes people don't tell you what you need to hear they tell you what you want to hear and i think he is as surprised by this third rate performance as anyone so again i think if you're in Putin's position, the most intelligent thing to do would be to do that decapitation strike, install a puppet, declare a victory, go back home, have limited loss of life. And now the one variable that he did not count on was this Russian like ultra military incompetence. And I think he's he's kind of now stuck. And I think what you're starting to see is a shift in Russian strategy which is to revert to or devolve, I guess, if you want to use kind of the Cro-Magnon sort of, uh, you know, concept or orcish concept of uh, Russian military, they're devolving back to their traditional tactics, which is, you know, they usually have much higher concentrations of artillery than Western militaries. And what they do is they tend to do the Grozny, you know, the Grozny playbook, which is rubble cities, try to destroy the, their, their adversary's will, and then you know come in and conquer once once that will has been depleted is is that is that an accurate assessment based on what you're seeing on the ground yeah that's that's exactly accurate and just to to bolster that observation about uh putin being surrounded by yes men and sort of believing his own propaganda there's a great blog by someone named igor sushko who claims to be an old FSB agent, and he translates what he claims are communications from his friends in the FSB who regard this as a huge fiasco. So there's no way to confirm it, but it is extremely interesting reading. And one of the letters, which claims to be from inside the FSB, complains how for decades only yes men got promoted, and there's just nobody left, especially in the leadership, to uh, push back against stupid ideas. That sounds like corporate America. Good, but continue. Yeah, it, it, probably, but more so. Like, I, I have a ton of complaints and problems with the West, but everything here is is magnified. It's like a, like the French writer Marquis de Custine. He was so, he's so like so many people in the West right now. He was so horrified by what he perceived as the decline of France that he looked to Russia as an alternative and then is now became so so outraged and just flabbergasted by what he saw that he's now known as a critic of Russia. 
So yeah, to me, it seems like Putin was surrounded by yes men. So they made this plan that they, they believe in the prestige and the might of their own army and just, and they believe their own propaganda about Ukrainians being pretty much like Russians. I think this war has less to do with NATO expansion and more to do with Russian identity. They have never mm -hmm. accepted Ukrainians as a separate people or a separate nation. Um, and and neither did Putin. And he thought it would be over very quickly, kind of like Crimea was and with carefully orchestrated demonstrations uh, combined with the shock of the world's second largest army crossing the border, uh, Ukraine would just capitulate. And and it hasn't. What what has made the critical difference? In other words, is it the rush? Is it the Ukrainian fighting spirit? Is it the you know training they've received since from Western militaries? Is it the supply of uh, you know uh, advanced Western military equipment like the javelin and the the stinger? Or is it just sheer Russian military incompetence, or is it kind of some it's, mix of all the above? All, it's all the things you mentioned, uh, starting with the the large number of Ukrainians who view this as the fight of their grandparents and great grandparents and great great parents, who view this as an eight hundred year old fight for freedom. You can't overstate how much uh, Ukrainian identity is rooted in. Um, this land being sort of a frontier where the Cossacks created their own rudimentary governance structures and defined themselves in opposition to the to the much more autocratic regimes that surrounded them. Um, Russia has done a lot to incorporate and diminish the the legacy of the Cossacks. Uh, there's a great book by Shane O'Rourke called The Cossacks. Well, I, I, I actually stop for, for, for folks who don't, and, and this includes me. Yeah. I, I've heard of the Don Cossack, Cossacks, and, yep. and, but, but I never really understood who they were, where they came from. If you could just like a brief historical background. Like I, I didn't even, I, didn't, I never even linked them with Ukraine. So that's just oh, kind of admitting yeah, my me, ignorance. Let me give you the yeah. overview. So there was Kiev and Rus, which was a, a contemporary of Constantinople. Uh, and uh, they were annihilated by the Mongols in uh, the year in the 12th century or 13th century. Um, both Moscow, both uh, Russia and Ukraine traced their ancestry to Kiev and Rus. And it was Tsar Peter of Russia who was previously called Muscovy, he, he looked around at all the people he conquered and he saw the Rus and he said, aha, we will call ourselves the Russians, the Rusins. Uh, so so there, there's that too. And to be clear, Kiev and Rus was based, uh, you know, centered upon modern day Kiev, Kiev yes. and the Russian side. Yeah, yeah the, though to be fair to the other side, like there were princes of the same dynasty that founded Moscow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so okay, so the so think of the aftermath of the Mongolian genocide. Um, huge swaths of land were depopulated completely in Kiev, which had been one of the largest political structures in Europe. There were only four buildings left standing. That's what they say. Uh, so it was complete, you know, genocide. So in the aftermath of that, uh, Moscow rose to power for three, almost 300 years as a vassal of the Golden Horde, which was the successors of the Mongolians. In Crimea, they were like Crimean Tartars, who were also like remnants of the Mongolians mixed with other people. And in the, in the West, you had Poland, Lithuania. Uh, both Poland, Lithuania and Moscow had systems of serfdom. And people would flee this serfdom to the uninhabited lands of Ukraine. And it was like, and it like it's a combination of bandits and serfs who wanted to be free and other stuff and and they they grew and they prospered and the land was very rich and they were never strong enough to form like a, a government like existed further west but they did have rudimentary forms of democracy because they valued their freedom so much mm -hmm. and the symbolism of the the freedom of the frontier i think it's analogous to like the wild west in america maybe the legacy of pirates um, and yeah, and it's a really powerful image. Uh, and the Cossacks often would, um, for example, they, they united with the Crimean Tartars to raid Moscow once. Another time they united with the Poles 
to stop a Turkish invasion. And shortly, that was uh, in the early 17th century, uh, during the time of the Thirty Years' War. Uh, shortly after that, they made a peace treaty with Moscow to have a rebellion against the Poles. So it was always like uniting with one of the three powers that surrounded them to fight the others because they weren't strong enough to, to do it themselves. Um, and when, yeah, and the treaty with Moscow, the Treaty of Periaslav, and we don't have the original copy of it. It's in Moscow, I think, but the, the original text is not public. Um, that was like the fateful treaty that tied Ukraine to Russia and from the Russian perspective created brotherly nations and from the Ukrainian perspective just created the, uh, you know, four or 500 years of slavery. Catherine the, the Great, like the original Cossacks were on the Dnipro River, south of Kiev. Mm -hmm. uh, they were the Zaporizhian Cossacks, that famous painting by Repin of the Turkish, of the Cossacks writing an FU letter to the Turkish Sultan, were the Ukrainian Cossacks. Uh, Catherine the Great of Russia destroyed them. A lot of them fled west to join the Don Cossacks. Um, the Russians, like the Russians had a frontier management strategy and they needed to because the frontier was a dangerous place. You would have, you know, Mongolian raiders and, and other stuff sometimes together with the Cossacks attacking them. So they had like a frontier management strategy and they kind of um, sought all ways of influencing and controlling the Cossacks. And under Catherine, the Cossacks lost more and more and more of their autonomy. And they imposed a brutal system of serfdom where it had never before existed. And that, that's where the Ukrainian and Russian narratives defy, whether we became brotherly nations or whether Ukrainians were, were enslaved. So that's, that's, maybe I should stop there. I don't wanna go on too long, but that's like the historical context. And I think it informs the Ukrainian fighting spirit. And I think Putin's blind to it because he believes only the Russian narrative and he doesn't, see this perception that many Ukrainians have that like we've been fighting for this forever and the Soviet Union was the darkest chapter of it but it was neither the beginning nor the end yeah so it seems you know just to to caricature caricature both sides right but I think the caricature is somewhat apt you have a country that was formed from very strong totalitarian and brutish tendencies of the Mongols um, that, you know, kind of has this slave oriented, you know, the surf, the serfdom and all that uh, you know, social structure that the Russians had, that's kind of the historical legacy of the Russian state. Whereas the Ukrainians have this independent streak with the, the Don, uh, not the Don, but just the, um, the, the Cossacks and, uh, you know, defending and, you know, move, be, having relative freedom to move around in their own, in their own space, but also being relatively vulnerable to their larger surrounding neighbors, like the Poles and the, you know, the Russians, et cetera. That's um, exactly right. And let me just bolster this by reading the history of Charles the 12th King of Sweden. Adolf Poltava, he's the he's the he's the one guy that won in Russia, right? Or actually, that's in Ukraine. No, they, well, they lost. They were successful. I, but then they lost in Poltava, and Ukraine lost its yeah. autonomy again. Uh, but from from that book, History of Charles the Twelfth, King of Sweden, Ukraine has always aspired to liberty, but being surrounded by Muscovy, the dominions of the Grand Senior. I don't know what that is. Actually, probably something Crimean. And Poland, it has been obliged to choose a protector and consequently a master in one of these three states. The Ukrainians at first put themselves under the protection of the Poles who treated them with great severity. They afterwards submitted to the Russians who governed them in despotic ways. Yeah, sounds, sounds about right. Well, another, another question that occurs to me is the Crimea. Is that... Did the people of the Crimea willingly vote for Russian domination as, I guess, is, you know, the history since 2014? Or is there a kind of a strong 
segment that wants to go back to Ukraine. The sentiment in Crimea was even more pro-Russian than it was in Donbass. In Donbass, mm. it was 30% as opposed to, in contrast to the 50% who wanted to be part of Ukraine. Let's jump back to 1991 for just a second. When Ukraine became independent, every region separately voted whether they would join an independent Ukraine. In Donbass, over 80% of the people voted to join Ukraine. So even there, it was really strong. In Crimea, I believe it was 55 or 57% of the population voted mm. to join Ukraine. So that's getting close. And because it was close, Crimea had a lot of autonomy under Ukraine's governance. Uh, Pro-Russian sentiment there was stronger than it was in Donbass. They had a big naval base there. Mm-hmm. There was They were constantly surveying what issues were important to the people of Crimea. Rejoining Russia was not on the radar. So it was always surveyed. So it came out of nowhere. Like there was no movement with charismatic leaders. Like it just, the Kremlin decided and then it happened. Um, about 12% of Crimea is uh, Crimean Tartar. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were genocided by by the Soviets. They were like 99% of them were deported. And they had about a 50% attrition rate. Then after Ukraine became independent, they many of them returned from Siberia or from Central Asia, where they were deported to. So certainly there was not 98% support for Russian annexation as those uh, as that so-called election or referendum showed. Uh, and we will we will never know what what the true sentiment was. There's little evidence that it was a Russian minority majority but Russian sentiment there was real. What has happened since annexation was that one or two leaders of the Crimean community disappeared and then were discovered with their bodies mutilated. That is standard practice to intimidate any like opposition. Uh, about a dozen Crimean activists and Ukrainian activists were taken away by the Russian security services. I'm sure some of them have been released. I haven't followed up. And like both the arrests and the two very graphic murders uh, were just a strong signal that everyone had to leave who had who wasn't in support of the Russian annexation. So, of course, everyone left. Uh, Pensions went up because people started receiving a Russian pension. About a quarter million people from Russia resettled to Crimea. It was promoted in Russia. And like the pension's the same. Why should I live in, you know, Siberia or somewhere cold? I can live in Crimea. Um, and a lot of businesses were seized and transferred to, you know, ma- the mafia that's connected to Putin, including like oil rigs. So like hundred million dollar businesses were changed hands and and life went on. All right. So that so even if even if there was some sort of a settled negotiation to this conflict, it's very unlikely that it would involve a transfer back of of the of the Crimea to Ukraine for for just for for the the reverse reason that Ukrainians don't want to belong to Russia. Most people in the yeah. Crimea are and, probably and unfortunately. I have a really hard time. Um imagining any kind of settled conflict, which is why this war has been so bloody, because I think um, Ukrainians certainly view it as an existential crisis. And while Russians may not view it as an existential crisis, Putin certainly does. Because the the most important thing in Russia, like the thing that's at the bottom of the stack of turtles, is appearing strong. Um, I think one of the reasons they break every treaty they sign is because they want to demonstrate that they're strong and dangerous and unpredictable. Um, so like them taking, well, oh, he, did. <laughs> he kind of, he kind of achieved the very opposite of that. I mean, yeah, I, exactly, exactly. So now it's like a caged animal. And, and I think a lot of people are wondering how far will they go to recreate the sort of intimidation that they tend to rely on. And, and that is, that is like, that is what they bring to the table. That is what they negotiate with in central Asia, uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Russia is directly competing with China. China offers a $10 trillion economy in contrast with 
Russia's one and a half trillion dollar economy. What Russia offers or has offered hitherto is the specter of just massive military might. So like they're they're losing their bargaining chip with which they work on the world stage. So like I think in the Kremlin's mind, this is absolutely an existential threat, which is which is pretty frightening. Okay, so let's let's veer back to the original point of the, the conversation, which is to this Russian military assessment. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read a, a few stats, and these, um, you know, just just so you know, this is this is the best kind of unit positioning and and map that I've seen in open source materials. There's an account called uh, Jomini of the West. Great on, account. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so this is his map. And I may or may not flash it on the screen right now as I as I talk through it, but it is it's excellent because you know you and I can read these symbols, but you know ninety nine percent of the folks in the press would have no idea what these you know what these things uh, unit icons and stuff like that mean. So in terms of numbers right now, um, you know it, it appears that the Russians had about a strength of between 175,000 to 190,000 you know, Russian forces going in. And then in the um, Donbass region, the DPR, there's another 20,000 in the DPR, uh, you know, in Donetsk. Um, and then about 14,000 in L- LPR, which is the kind of militia for Luhansk, right? Yep. So... Let's see. That's you know. So call it if you kind of round that up, it's about thirty-four thousand. So you're talking two hundred or you know two hundred nine thousand to two hundred twenty-nine, uh, two hundred twenty-four thousand. Call it. Sorry, I'm trying to do like math in real time, and you know, bear with me here. So that's kind of the Russian end strength. Whereas the Ukrainian army has an end strength of around 209,000. Then there's an additional 102,000 in paramilitary units and then 900,000 reserves. Okay. Um, That math doesn't look great for the Russians. Typically when you want to attack, uh, you know, at the national training center as fighting as a Russian, which I did for five years using their doctrine and tactics, um, the uh, in, in what in what sense? I don't, did did you get to like raid gas stations and grocery stores? Uh, no, but we did get the barbecue. We definitely did get the barbecue. Um, but you know, again, we were designed to win, right? There's only one battle out of a hundred where I can say we got our butts kicked, and then one time we beat somebody so bad that they had us do a, do a redo the next day, which was an Easter Sunday, and we were so angry that uh, they assigned my motorized rifle battalion to attack through the center of their defenses, right? And we still, like, we just cut through them like, you know, uh, like a knife through butter because we were so pissed off that we had to work on Easter, Easter Sunday, because we did so well the day prior, right? We'd beaten them so badly the day prior. The army, the army always punishes the best performers. You get the most dangerous missions, you know, the most dangerous assignments. It was fun, but regardless, stepping back in all those battles, we would typically never attack a fixed position unless we outnumbered the enemy by three to one. Okay. I just told you the math. Like that's, you know, uh, that's not even, that's like three to two in in Ukraine's favor. If you don't account for the Ukraine, you know, the Ukrainian reserves. So I'm I'm struggling now. Granted, the Russians have superior firepower. They have hypersonic missiles, which they, by the way, they they had the first battlefield use of a hypersonic missile That's in history yesterday. Might not be true. That story might not be true. Stay tuned. Oh, re- oh, interesting. It might interesting. be another information op. Because the, the Western, like Western media, confirmed it. Um, because the military, the Pentagon, confirmed it. Hmm. Well, let's uh, let's wait and see. Yeah, it's very possible. It's very possible. So with that in mind, uh, and then if I look at the map, right, you have the Russians are kind of stopped up on the, um, you know, the the Donets River, and then they're kind of held up 
in you know pockets around Kiev. So I imagine, you know, they the Ukrainians have to hold that river. If the Russians achieve a breakthrough there, the next natural barrier, right, is going to be the Dnieper River. So, you know, w- with that with that in mind, what what can the Russians do here? I don't think they have the combat power to do anything other than rubble cities with their artillery. Yeah, um, and. I don't think the three to one ratio is anything secret. I think that's that's well publicized for for. And assessment. they say in, in cities it's ten to one too. Yeah, like exactly. That's the other oh, oh, you took the words out of my mouth. So, okay, so taking Kiev ten to one. I don't know why the hell they were fighting so hard for the suburbs around Kiev, Irpin and Bucha. Um, by the way, I've driven through Irpin and Bucha probably probably a hundred times. Uh, my wife and I speculated about buying a home there. It was a upper, upper middle-class suburb of Kiev. My, my daughter was born like, you know, three miles away. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's surreal. And now watching them dig uh, mass graves and then putting 60 civilians in a mass grave there. But anyway, like, I, I don't know what the hell they're doing, just fighting so hard for that, which was kind of like building the bridge to Kiev or building an encirclement of Kiev. Because even even their well, well, uh, uh, power. I'll tell you the answer. I'll tell you the answer. If they don't do that, they'll starve. Literally, right? They don't have the lines of supply. They need to be able to support the lines of supply to get, you know, get get that stuff to Ukraine. Well, I guess they could well, come. But what yeah, do they ahead. do after? Like all, all of their original combat power was not enough to take Kiev. So so then you have like five uh, five. What do they call them? BTGs, but. Brigade tactical yeah, groups, but, something tactical but, groups, battalion tactical groups. Yeah, yeah. So you have them like fighting like hell to to make progress on this encirclement. Like, what do you do after that? It, it did not make sense to me. It sound it seemed to me like they were just everyone was just pursuing scraps of an old plan uh, for another like week or two after the plan was completely discredited. Yeah, I don't. I think Putin's beginning to realize that the longer this thing lasts, the worse his bargaining position is going to be. At the same time, the U.S. are funneling um, or is funneling 100,000 troops into Europe, which is the largest that have been there since 2005, when I think we started, you know, withdrawing. So the other thing too is the Germans. Like, you know, I mean, like, who would have thought? You know, Trump tried to get them to do this by insulting them. Um, which 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 didn't work, but you know it just took a it just took a uh, Putin's invasion to convince them to spend two percent of their GDP on on a military expansion. Who would have thought we'd we'd be here? But this all around this is this this invasion has appeared to accomplish exactly the opposite of what Putin has stated is important to him, which is the you know preventing the extension of NATO. Now you have you know the like fin- Finland and Sweden are at play now. Preventing right. the extension of NATO and becoming one nation, uh, in my mind, that's uh, that's more important because they were doing the same nonsense before NATO was ever on the table. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I agree, I agree with that. So you know, given given their so so so, how is their military performance been? Like again, on in the Western media, it appears to be the the worst performance I've ever seen since the Winter War in Finland. But uh, again, stuff that we're fed is not necessarily going to be, we're not going to, we're not going to, we're not going to, for instance, I never see anything about, um, you know, Ukrainian uh, military defeats and and things like that. Like we're just not even presented with those at all, except for that recent bombing where there are about 80 soldiers or so um, from that artillery strike. Yeah. Um i think I think what we're getting is true, but exaggerated, uh, although not by much, you know, like the Russian uh, the Soviet catastrophe of the winter war, which you mentioned, nineteen forty to forty one, um they they lost a war where they had a hundred to one, you know, superiority in numbers. So like this is this happens in their history. You could look at their disastrous uh, performance in the sino-Japanese war. Um, you could look at, at how they just had to, their losses when they were fighting the Nazis, uh, just absolutely catastrophic. Um, 
So you, you don't need like, like I share your, I share your like perception of the Western media that they've done a lot to discredit themselves in recent, in the last decade. Uh-huh. But the, the story is not wrong. I think the most you can say is that there are exaggerations here and there. There is absolutely no universe in which this is what Russia wanted with no major cities captured uh, except Kherson. I'm not sure if that's a major city, um, but, and they're 20, 20 days into what they thought would be a, a two or three day operation. And they're humiliated on the international stage. There, there's absolutely no way, there's no way that this isn't catastrophic for them. So how does Putin get out of it? You know, Russia, Russia was able that their choice was between prosperity and empire, and they chose empire. Um, there's sort of like he gets out of it by by stepping aside. This is not what they can do. I think they still have that that we're still the legacy of Genghis Khan over there. Uh, you have like seventy percent support for Russia. It may be fake, but historically, this is what happens. Historically, it's what Marquis de Custine said. They're intoxicated with slavery from top to bottom. Though there is a minority of extremely courageous Russians who at great risk to themselves are are speaking out about this. Um, What I want to happen is for them to find enough identity in their literature, in their dance, in their composers, in in the the frontier that they had out to Siberia, which like there's a there's a bit of a frontier culture there, uh, and f- find enough potential in the future use of their massive natural resources that they can just take the L, just take the loss. And I want Ukraine to be European and Russia to survive. And I think that would be the best case scenario. The risks to that happening are their utter reliance on appearing strong. And like for 800 years, the most important thing for them was to appear strong. And uh, and the worst case scenario is that they will do something really crazy in order to preserve their ability to intimidate their neighbors and the world as a whole. And with that, let's talk crazy. So what... What is your opinion about the relative likelihood that he will try, he being Putin, will tr- will attempt to employ the use of chemical, biological, or you know, tactical nuclear weapons to achieve a breakthrough? And just for context, at the National Training Center, when I fought like the Russians, we would routinely use chemical and biological weapons or not biological, but chemical weapons in training, not, you know, not real chemical weapons, but, you know, we would, they would throw C- CS gas on the, you know, on, 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 on soldiers to simulate it. But, but there was a whole art and science behind it. Right. So there would be, you know, non-persistent and persistent chemicals that we would use. So for persistent chemicals, that would be to deny access to a place for basically forever. Right, because um, that stuff doesn't go away. Whereas pers- persistent chem- chemicals, we would use that to force people into ambushes and minefields and other sorts of nasty things. We would use FASCAM, Family of Scatterable Mines, which is artillery delivered mines to you know chase people into into minefields when we ambush them. It was actually a very sophisticated um, you know form of war. We would also um, you know ensure, and this is this is a little little known open secret, but uh, the reason the U.S. military does not use chemical weapons is not because they're bad. It's because it's primarily because they're unpredictable, right? So if the prevailing winds shift on you, and we would also examine that, we would look at the weather, where the winds were blowing, and things like that before we, you know, use these notional chemical weapons. Um, but you know, the, the, the fundamental point is the U.S. military doesn't use them because they can blow back in your face and, and kill your own kill your own people. So have you know, a, what do you think the probability is that he's going to use it Two, have you seen signs just in, in just the, the Russian kit, right. Where they're, they have suddenly have chem, like, um, you know, NBC masks and things like that, that they're bringing closer to the front. Have you seen any evidence of that? Um, 
I have not seen evidence of chemical or biological weapons, so I think you're following a lot of the same channels that I am. Uh, some people have said that they use munitions that are illegal. Oh, in fact, the UN said that they're using, um, I forget what they're called. Thermobaric. Thermobaric. The or UN vacuum UN. bombs. Yeah. And the kind that have a lot of small little bombs. So oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The bomblets, they're cluster, um, cluster, cluster munitions. munitions. So, uh, okay, so there's that. Uh, I haven't seen anything to indicate like chemical, biological, or, or nuclear. Um, aside from like a localized, a very small localized use of something like white phosphorus, I think the chance of a large scale use of chemical, biological, or nuclear is small but real. And I think it's small because, for example, Russia is today exaggerating, grossly exaggerating the progress of uh, negotiations that are underway with Ukraine. And it's the common common perception is that they're doing that so that sanctions don't get any worse. So I think uh, I think ha if they use uh, chemical, biological or nuclear, then Russia would become toxic to any kind of Chinese partnership. Because um, China also has aspirations to be an admired culture and to be a player on the world stage. And if China is not, it, it wouldn't be enough for China to not help. China would have to actively oppose Russia, uh, would actively have to oppose a user of chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons. So in, in my arithmetic, the um, chances are small, but real, and real because it is so important to Russia to appear strong. It is the most important thing. All right. So again, back to the military assessment. How how which like how are they fighting on a small unit level? Kind of small unit tactics against the Ukrainians. Um, the consensus is that they continue to be horrible, and, and morale continues to be extraordinarily low. I believe. The recordings of the intercepted recordings that I think you heard, I believe those are real. One of them went so far as to say that they're shooting each other in the legs, though I do believe that represents a minority of like demoralized Russian units. I don't think it's quite that bad, though it is very bad. So there are some improvements. Uh, they're improving their integration, uh, like they're using drones to correct artillery on Ukrainian positions. I saw that. Um, there have been a few planes that are outfitted for suppression of Ukrainian air defenses uh, for those types of missions. Although, as I understand correctly, that is a hard mission to do. And like they're, they're doing this untrained. So I, I don't know how effective they'll be. But the, of course, of course, they're getting they're getting better. But Ukrainians are also getting better. Well, here's another question. Why haven't the Russians who have superior resources when it comes to their aircraft, why haven't 20, you know, four, 25 days into this conflict, why haven't they suppressed the Ukrainian air defenses? Like, I, I, like I'm flabbergasted by this. Um, corruption isn't a bug in the Russian system. It's a feature. <laughs> it's a way that they buy loyalty. So Putin... Their freaking commander in chief, Shoigo, I forgot his name. Uh, Shoigu, Shoigu. Yeah, yeah, he's not even a military guy. Yeah. He's not a military guy. So they have a system that's based on loyalty, not on, um, not on competence. And one of the ways they do loyalty is by putting people in charge of military industries or like military units with the expectation that these people will steal. So I, I think all of the effectiveness and readiness of the Russian military was was fake. It was just just like when Putin was a KGB agent, he probably lied to his superiors about everything that he had going on and the how well he was accomplishing the mission. Now everyone's lying to him about it. And I think he's in a position where it's really hard to know who to trust because like the it's a culture of Potemkin villages. Uh, for those that don't know, a Potemkin village, when Catherine the Great, after she destroyed the Ukrainian Cossacks, 
She went on a trip through Ukraine and they built villages, fake villages along her route. So she- I didn't know that was in Ukraine. I didn't even, I, I know, I know the story about Potemkin villages, but I, 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 I didn't know that was in Ukraine, but sorry, continue. That's a, yeah, that's, yeah. you learn something new they every day. Fake villages and, and Potemkin village refers to something that's just an entirely fake and, Russia is made out of Potemkin villages, which is why they don't like open peace and they don't like open war. They thrive in some like long-term simmering conflict where they could always make threats with the uh, with uh, the second largest army in the world. It's a gray zone warfare, right? Like yeah. the, uh, the, the to to our um, oh, that's one of the weaknesses of the Western way of war. For for the West, it's it's digital, right? It's a switch. You're either at war yeah. or you're at peace. Yes, yes. yes. Whereas, whereas it's analog in the Russian culture where it's kind of a, you, you, you kind of raise the dial just as far as you exactly can get, right. Yeah, but not yeah. quite over. Yeah. Yeah. In the, in the West, war is regarded as expensive and damaging. So you start it and then you finish it and then you get on with life. Uh, Russia has the view that, and, and this is, again, the legacy of Genghis Khan, Russia has the view that everyone is always trying to kill everyone else, and we have to be the strongest. So, like, war never stops. It's, like, it just goes up and goes down. Um, I will also say that just keeping, like, this this gray zone, it nullifies what may be the army, our army's, the U.S. Army's greatest advantage, which is, like, a delegation of authority. Because if everything is clear, then like small unit initiative matters a lot. But if everything is made out of Potemkin villages and you don't know if you're at war or not and anything else, then maybe that sort of initiative gets nullified and a more vertical structure like Russia's may be more effective in that kind of confusing environment. Yeah, because no one really knows what's going on. So you can you have perfect plausible deniability on whether people are in certain places or not. I I think we need to get better at this form of warfare, but you, you, you get better at it, not by configuring your military to fight it, but by outsourcing the gray aspects of it, like hiring mercenaries and um, doing things that are plausible, plausibly do not deniable. That's um, interesting. I, I would say like another way to protect like the West, and, and I do believe that, that Western civilization has done great things that have informed and improved the whole world. Um, but another way to protect it is like, don't deteriorate the liberties of the West. Don't deteriorate reputation and capacity for honesty and open debate. And like in the long term, maintaining those ideals matter. Like the Russian, the perennial Russian strategy of Potemkin villages and dishonesty and creating the perception of unpredictability and recklessness that only helps in the short term. Um, In the long term, they have failed to create, you know, a culture that's widely admired. Like everyone along Russia's border from Finland to Ukraine and even Georgia, like they just want a protection from Russia. You know, they want to be a part of the West. Uh, Belarus perhaps is the only exception, though even there, there are widespread protests that always have to get... Let's talk about Belarus, because that's the other thing the Western media has completely glossed over and missed. Putin bloodlessly conquered Belarus in the last three weeks. No one talks about that. That's what it seemed like, although... Where there's no invasion, but by the way, as of today, the Ukrainian military forces said that there may be an invasion from Belarus in the coming days. Um, but but I think they should have attacked a week ago, and I think there's so much dissent in their in their military from top to bottom that I think they're they're having trouble. So yes, like like you said, Russia conquered Belarus in the sense that they put massive military forces there and then said, hey, guess what we're saying? But it's it's brittle. This type of autocracy is very brittle and things certainly have not gone their way. So, you know, we're, we're kind of running up on, on our time pretty shortly, but one of the things that we, we should talk about uh, is, uh, the first is, where do you think this thing goes in the next 
call it 90 days. And then two, what what would be the concept? What do you think happens to Putin? And then we can talk through that. So those 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 two things. So what do you think kind of is next in the kind of operational, tactical, and strategic picture in the next 90 days? Gosh. Well, I, I hope Francis Fukuyama is correct who predicted the catastrophic collapse of Russian military units, collapse and retreat. <laughs> Oh, he wasn't. He wasn't correct. He wasn't correct at the end of history. So I don't know why I'd be correct right, about right. this one. Yeah. yeah. Um, by the his book, Origin of Political Order. I love the book. Just ignore his conclusions. Other than that, it's a <laughs> it's an incredible read. Um. Uh. So what do I think happens? I, I think Russia's going to dig in and keep everything they can. I think they'll start threatening the world with nuclear war, like they always do. Um, when Americans in, in the 1990s, when America's, when America, uh, objected, American politicians objected to the indiscriminate destruction of Grozny in Chechnya, uh, the Russians threatened nuclear war. They always threaten nuclear war. Um, so I, I think, I think they're going to dig in and hold as much as they can. And I think, uh, this is too hard to say, because I mean, I'm sorry, I, I'm rambling because I wasn't ready to make a prediction, and and I'm still not. As I say these things, I well, in, thinking, in in private, you talked, and, and not even in private earlier earlier in this episode or the the episode before that. Uh, sorry, or the yeah the episode before this one, you talked about frozen conflict and you know their ability to kind of just keep things yeah. simmering. I can see. You know, based I, I on think your perspective what, there the, yeah okay here's a prediction they'll definitely try to make this a frozen conflict and keep it simmering so they could keep making threats and always like negotiate without ever getting anywhere so negotiate so they could lift sanctions um but if you think about how losing 15,000 soldiers in nine years in afghanistan contributed to the collapse of the soviet union perhaps losing uh close to that number of soldiers in a month will contribute to the collapse of the Putin regime. And like I said, my hope is that Russia survives and redefines itself and finds enough finds enough there that they can get rid of their 800-year history of being governed governing each other by fear and intimidation. So that raises the next question in terms of what happens to Putin. Um, and this is something that our media hasn't figured out yet but something I've been saying for a few weeks now, which is while in the immediate term, that would appear to be a good thing. Um, I think, I think getting Russia out of Ukraine and retaining Putin is a better option than overthrowing Putin and, 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 and leaving Ukraine. And the reason I say that is because you know, while he's, you know, appears to have, by every indication, to be a terrible human being, he has been able to keep Russia stable. And my concern would be with his removal, you have the loose nuke scenario where you have people fighting for control of Russia. And in the interim, people take their eye off the ball. And in order to win those struggles, you can raise a lot of money by selling a lot of nukes. So anyway, with that context, what do you think happens to Putin? This catastrophic failure has to go somewhere. So either he needs to take it and uh, and hand off the reins to someone else, or he's going to do some massive purge of his senior leadership and they'll go. It's down. already started. It's already started. Yeah, exactly. It's already started. Although I think it's less, it's less, they're less blameworthy than he is, but who knows? I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. Um, it's... All right. Well, and then uh, before I end, there's one, there's one question that I raised in the last segment and I, I deferred it to this one and I haven't touched it. Um, VDV versus uh, 82nd Airborne. What, what, oh, yes. Uh, yeah. Thank you for asking. So, I've never understood Russian paratroopers. They, they look weird. They act weird. And uh, have you seen the video, the VDV uh, rap song? Have you seen that? I've probably seen a modified version of it. 
or it just has some like pro-Ukrainian <laughs> subtitles, which is uh, hilarious. Um, but uh, Russian, I think I think the verdict is that that Russian paratroopers are not there to fight enemy militaries. They're there to intimidate civilians and to fight maybe disorganized militias and keep the population under control while the rest of the Russian army does the heavy fighting. That's what the VDV is. And that's why they are so incredibly different from an organization like the, the 82nd Airborne Division. And I mean, how would you compare the 82nd Airborne Division's you know, military capabilities versus the VDV? Well, the 82nd Airborne, like we're meant to fight, a, we're meant to take over an airfield or fight a military at least long enough that follow-on forces can arrive to help us. Um, that mission, you know, that's been the mission since Soviet times and like all the training and mentality and behavior is, is geared towards that mission. Whereas the VDV, they just nurture this like drunken hooligan uh, persona, which is meant to, they're like riot police. They're meant to intimidate and uh, civilian populations, maybe disorganized militias and just keep them in line. So okay, like, but they... like so much else in Russia, it's a psychological operation. Interesting. All right, any, any final words for the audience? on this on this particular topic well i want to thank you for having me on your show if you are interested in helping ukraine you can link to charities uh there are pinned blog posts on my blog roman in ukraine the top charity there is one that i'm personally helping with and there are others a little bit further down all right thank you again roman and uh i look forward to talking with you on a completely different topic uh in the next episode see you soon mm-hmm.